Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jude. We'll read verses 17 through 21. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. All right. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Not sure? Good. Great. It's good to see you. Why don't we pray, and you can figure out how you're doing, and then we'll get right down to work, okay? Father, we thank you for this morning. As has already been prayed, we uh, want to acknowledge that many in this room are weary and worn down, maybe even beat down from life um, in perfect storms, in a, in a broken world, uh, with hearts that still have so many rebel tendencies. Maybe there are people this morning who feel very far from your love. Uh, maybe they feel out of reach. Um, I'm glad that they're here. I know, Father, that you are glad that they are here. And so we just pray that by your grace, through the work of your spirit, uh, you would use your voice, your words to restore us and to bring our hearts to life again and help us to see the beauty of Jesus, our rescuing king, uh, the one who shows us kindness instead of, instead of judgment, mercy instead of the justice that we deserve. And help us as we spend time in your word to see these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're in week four of our series in the short letter of Jude. One more week to go. We were delayed a week by a typhoon, well, a wannabe typhoon a couple weeks ago. So we would be finishing up today, but we'll have uh, one more in Jude a week from now. You know that our theme all along, very simple, has been forever kept. That's because we, we see that idea in Jude's opening and Jude's closing. And what he means by that is while the work of foster care in our world is very important and in our broken world plays such a vital role to pr provide care for children in uh, short-term settings that may be coming from very broken environments, as beautiful as that is, God the Father is not in the business of foster care. He is an adoptive father. He plays for keeps. So if he has rescued you from your rebellion and you are now a son or a daughter, you are forever kept. He will never let you go. You didn't earn your way into the family. Jesus earned it for you. You don't earn your keep in the family. Jesus earns your keep for you. You don't have to prove that you're a good son or a good daughter to stay. The father says, you are mine, you are fully forgiven, perfectly loved, and forever kept. Okay? Jude's very passionate about that idea, and we should be too, forever kept. Here's our big idea from the passage that Grant already read for us that we'll unpack this morning. It goes like this. Jesus' family is full of forgetful, wandering kids, and you're probably one of them. Like, man, this pastor's really mean. What church should we visit next week? Uh, if it makes you feel any better, I am one of those kids. Okay. Jesus' family is full of forgetful, wandering kids. You're probably one of them. Uh, I am. I am one of those kids. Now, that presents a real dilemma for us, though. It's a real prob problem, actually. Because what we learned last week is, Jude's whole point is that there's this work of contending that we need to do, right? And our work in contending for the gospel as a family determines the culture of our family. Either we will be a beautiful, safe harbor where people can find redemption and restoration and rest, or we will be, the beauty of the gospel will be marred. There will be brokenness in our call. It won't be a safe place. You won't be able to rest here. Sinners, rebels would not be able to sail in. They wouldn't even want to be here. But if they tried to come in, 
right? There, Jude uses the imagery of hidden reefs below the surface of the water. If we're not contending, uh, there will be reefs below the surface of the water in the culture of our family, and those reefs will rip the souls of people right out. No rest, no beauty. So this is a real problem for us if we're forgetful, wandering kids, but the Father calls us to this very important work of contending for the gospel for the good of other people. Now, the reason we need to contend, Jude talks about it, we've explored it for the last couple of weeks. There were persons in the church who Jude says were perverting the grace of God, and what we saw was that in his kindness and God's grace, he's given us limits to live within for our good and for our flourishing. But when we pervert God's grace and reject his authority, our tendency as rebels is to walk away from those limits and to, be, to live beyond the limits. And when we, in our life, whenever we move beyond the limits that God has kindly given to us, and Jude talks about those limits as it relates to our sexuality, remember our sexual identity and expression, but it's true for all of life. He says our souls will always meet with death beyond the limits, always. And then some of us who have grown up more religiously, um, maybe we've pressed less beyond the limits, but we are super suspicious of any freedom, and so we construct our own artificial limits, right? We might live behind those limits. But either, either our perversions of the gospel, and rather than creating a beautiful, safe place, both of those tendencies actually create a dangerous, gospel-less a place where people cannot find rest or restoration. So Jude says, do the work of contending because your work in contending determines the culture of the family, either beautiful, restful, restorative, or not. And so here's our dilemma. We are wandering, forgetful kids. A couple years ago, uh, some of the world's leading scholars when it comes to the letter of Jude actually wrote a poem to express the tension that exists right there, and here's what they had to say, or sing. Would you like me to sing it for you? Too bad, not happening. I've, oh man, I've sung one song publicly in a karaoke setting. It's when Jack and Michelle Free were still here. Anybody remember Jack? Jack could get anybody to sing at karaoke. And I'm not going to tell you what song that was, because you might stop coming to church here. I'm just kidding. You won't stop. It was a Metallica song, and I feel like I nailed it. I feel like I really, really, really nailed it. So they write, hey, Jude, don't make it bad, man. Like, Jude's letter has just been bad. It's bad. And so they say, take a sad song and make it better. And that's exactly what Jude does at this point. It, Jude's letter has been a sad song. Right? The gospel is being perverted. There are reefs below the water. What should be beautiful is broken. What should be safe, restful, restorative is kind of dangerous. And Jude is going to kind of pivot and show us how, as a family, we can, we can be serious about the work of contending, and it's attainable to us. And together, if we will commit ourselves to this work, together, we can contend for the gospel in such a way that the culture of this family will be a beautiful, safe harbor where anyone can find rest, reconciliation to the Father through Jesus, and redemption. He's going to take a sad song and make it better. And here's what Jude gives us in this short section of Scripture. I like to call it the forgetful wanderer's guide to contending. Or if you don't want to get too wrapped up in the idea of contending, uh, really we could just synonymously insert in there following Jesus. Okay, so this is a guide for all those of us who tend to wander and tend to forget. So really, it's a guide for all of us on how to contend or how to follow Jesus. And first, Jude's going to say, look, if we're serious about doing the work of contending, like if we're really passionate and committed to this, this family being a safe harbor, first we're going to remember something. First step, got to remember something, very important. And then in remembering, we're going to remain somewhere. Rather than running a million other places reactively, we're going to remember, like take a deep breath, take a deep breath, not overreact, not run around like crazy. We're going to remain somewhere. And the way that we remain, he really breaks that down for us. The way we remain is together as a family, we build up on a foundation that already exists. We, are, we pray in, I'm going to show you what he means by praying in, 
and we, we wait for, we're waiting for something. He's going to talk about a reordering or reorienting of our hope, okay? So that's what we're doing today, the Forgetful Wanderer's Guide to Contending. So let's start with remembering. Right off the bat in verse 17, he just begins with these words, you must remember. Now notice the next couple of words. He says, beloved, you, beloved. He actually repeats those words. You heard it when Grant read for us again in verse 20. But you, beloved. That's kind of Jude's way of setting this whole paragraph off. In other words, all of his letter has been about the brokenness of the culture because of those who were perverting the gospel. But now he's like, but listen, for those of you who are truly sons and daughters of God, and you don't want to pervert the gospel, and you are committed to a culture in the family that is beautiful and safe and restorative, here's what you do, okay? Here's what you do. Um, and I want to, I don't want to show my hand too early, but you might be surprised, nothing that he calls us to here involves going after the people who are causing the problems. I think that's really important, but maybe tuck that away and it'll surface here in a little bit. All right, so first, you must remember. Some of you may have been a little off-put in the introduction when you saw the big idea and you're like, wait, Jesus' family is full of forgetters and wanderers. You're, you're implying, you're suggesting I'm one of those. No, I, I'm not. Jude is. The, the, the very presence of the command suggests this is something we need to hear because it's opposite what we normally do. We normally forget. We normally wander. So he says, you must remember. We're forgetful people. And this idea is not unique to Jude. It's dominant throughout Scripture. Like if, you, if, you like to, if you're the kind of person that likes to find threads that run all the way through Scripture, here's one of them, actually, forgetting, remembering. It's all through Scripture. Here's an early example from Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 6. The author says, hey, take care. Those are working words, right? Like, hey, pay attention, be diligent, do some work, because if you don't, you're going to forget. So take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you had been rescued from slavery, would you ever forget the person who rescued you? Like, no. If you were ever rescued from slavery, would you ever forget how horrible slavery was? No. Well, the Bible says yes. And it's not just that the Bible says yes, like the stories, the narratives that the Bible gives us, especially God's people, Israel, as we follow them, what we see over and over again is they, they do forget, like they forgot how bad it was. In fact, they forgot so quickly, what did they want to do? Go back. And the point is not for us to read that narrative and be like, they are some terrible, ungrateful people. How could they feel like that? The point is that they are a mirror in front of our face so that when we read their story, we see ourselves and we do the same thing. We want to go back. We forget, right? So we've got to take care lest you forget. So that's Jude's uh, first command. Remember. Some of you still aren't convinced, though. You're like, I don't, I don't forget stuff. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. What's the most, well, for, for, for example, who's willing to share? What's the most critical piece of information that you've ever forgotten? Not your spouse or somebody in your family has forgotten, but you forgot. What you got? Yes. Oh, wait, all together now. Oh. Wait, in a drive through? Mm, nice, George. Nice. All right, let's all pick up our rocks now because we would never do that. You know, George, when I just, hey, just uh, when I was a kid. Uh, my dad drove all of us to a pool. We were too poor for a pool, so we went to our friend's house. And the four of us boys get out. We run down to the pool, jump in. We're swimming. Five, ten minutes, we're swimming. Dad and mom don't come. We all look up to the car. They're still seated in the car. And my mom, like, we never really saw them have a big fight, but it was clear they were having a conversation that was going to prevent them from joining us at the pool. About two minutes later, dad opens the door, calls us all back to the car. We ride in silence for like 20 minutes. And then he's like, we were all boys at the time. My sister wasn't born yet. He's like, hey, hey boys, today's your mom's birthday. And <laughs> none of us remembered. So it was, yeah, well, I've been there, been there. But I was 10, George. I was 10. <laughs> uh, you're all like, yeah, I don't, I don't forget stuff. Yeah, the four-digit pin on your iPhone is like your birth year. You know, mine is. Johnny tried to get on my phone yesterday. He's like, Dad, what's your, what's your pin? I'm like, it's my birth year, dude. He's like, oh, 1980? I'm like, yeah, 1980. I was just more proud that my 
seven-year-old son remembered my birth year. Um, anybody else have like an eight-page document on their computer that has every single password for every single... I'm the only one? Okay, see, you, we, we forget. Yeah, we forget. That's a bad idea, by the way. Um, you don't have to look for it. All of my passwords contain some combination of either the words Okinawa, Phillies, or Buffalo Bills, right? And like my birth year, you got that. So all you need is my pet name and we're all set. The point is we forget, guys. We're forgetful. We forget. And what does Jude want them to remember here? He's very specific. He says, I want you to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to encourage you, uh, especially if you're new to the Christian faith, look, 90% of following Jesus is simply doing the work of remembering. Like, even our worship gatherings are set up around remembering. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. We sing similar songs every week. We rehearse the gospel every week. It's the critical work of remembering in community because we're forgetful people. So 90, 95% of following Jesus is simply remembering. He wants them to remember the predictions of the apostles. What are the predictions of the apostle as it relates to them? He says, uh, the apostles said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers. Now, just real quick, last time, you're like, wait, when's that? Uh, we are in the last times, and they were in the last times then. Unfortunately, there's a whole cottage industry out there of Christian publishing and conferences and all that that's all about making money on the fears of people as it relates to the last times or the last days or the end times, okay? When I was growing up, there was an entire book series that became a movie with, um, yes. And before that, for those of you who don't remember, it was actually a movie like in the 70s and there was a song, who sang that song? Larry Norman. I wish we'd all been ready, right? So that's, that's going on every generation. Look, we're in the last days. Uh, when the Bible, when authors of the Bible write about the last days, it's an era of time spanning from uh, Christ, his incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. That kind of gets the clock ticking, and it tick, 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 ticks until he returns. Like that whole era of history is the last days, okay? So we just need to tone down the fear language a little bit as it relates to followers of Jesus. We are in the last days. So what's going to happen in the last days, Jude says? He says, uh, look, there will always be scoffers. In every church, in every community, around the world, there will always be scoffers. These scoffers will follow their own ungodly passions. That's what we've been seeing in Jude, right? A scoffer is somebody who scoffs at God's word, maybe questions God's word, questions the authority of his word, or maybe questions the goodness of God in giving limits, questions the shelf life of God's limits. Like, well, maybe these are God's limits for people in the first century BC or AD, but clearly 2,000 years from now, cultures change so much. Clearly God would want us to adapt these limits that he's given us for our good so that we, you know, we're more relevant in society, blah, 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 right? Questioning, 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 scoffers. Uh, mocking, questioning God's word, walking away, scoffing or mocking those who strive to live joyfully uh, within the limits that God has ascribed. Jude said they're, they're always going to be around. Don't, don't let this like shock you or, or catch you off guard. There are going to be scoffers. They're going to follow their own godly passions. Uh, they're going to cause divisions. They're worldly people. And what Jude means by that is that is the worldly ethic, right? That hasn't changed in all of time. The ethic of our culture, it's worldly, is that feelings are supreme. How you feel is your true north. So if you follow your feelings, you will actualize, you will discover, you'll find life. Uh, that's the opposite of what the gospel says. It, it, not that emotions and feelings are bad, but they're not, they're not supreme. They're not trustworthy enough to be supreme. So the gospel would say, don't let them be supreme. Rather, we submit them to Jesus. So we don't follow our passions. We follow God with all of our passions, submitting them to him as we strive to joyfully live within the limits that he's given us for our good and our flourishing, right? But these will follow their passions instead. They'll cause divisions in the church family because of it, and ultimately it's because they're devoid of the Spirit. This is kind of the clearest statement in the letter where Jude says, because he's addressing, look, he's addressing problems in the church, not outside the church. And so this is kind of where he gets the clearest to say those persons who are perverting the goodness, the grace of God, 
they're not legitimate sons and daughters. They may share the same confessions, may sing the same songs, show up for all the sermons and the studies and the missional communities and, and all the things, but the way in which they're living, right, because they have embraced feeling passion as supreme rather than in submission to Jesus, and because they're causing divisions, this is revealing to you that they're not actually sons and daughters, or Jude would say they're devoid of the Spirit, because that is like the, the clearest indicator in the New Testament that somebody has been brought from rebellion into redemption and reconciliation with the Father. He gives us His Spirit as a sign of our sonship or daughtership. We'll see that in a little bit in, in Romans. So Jude says you got to remember this. It's always going to be this way in every generation in the last, in the last days. And why do, you think, why do you think it's so important that this church, that all churches, remember that it's always going to be this way? I think because when we don't remember, we react in an unhealthy way. Or we could say when we forget, we freak out, right? You could imagine that these things happening, the, the people in the church that Jude is writing to, the churches, they could say, Jude, you don't understand. We have people in our church, maybe even some leaders, who are scoffing at the idea of God's goodness or the authority of his word. Clearly the sky's falling. They're following their ungodly passions and telling us to do the same. That if God really loved us, he would celebrate us following our passions wherever they take us. And they're scoffing at us because we, we are striving to remain within the limits that God has given us for. Good. Clearly the sky is falling. It's all falling apart. And Jude's first point is, look, if we fail to remember that the apostles said it will always be this way, we will never actually contend for a beautiful culture because we will be so busy reacting to every sense that we have that the sky is falling either inside the church or outside the church. Now... I want to show you something. This kind of reminded me of one of the most powerful modern-day parables, and here it is. You guys recognize these characters? They predate you a little bit because you guys got like the Pixar Disney version that was hyper-sanitized from the original. Do you know who these characters are? Who are they? Shame, shame. Your mother never read this book to you? All right, Chicken Little. But Chicken Little actually has a name. Anybody know her name? Bonus points. Mm -mm. Wait, what? That is one of the characters. Who's Chicken Little? I'm like, why are we talking about this in church? It's Henny Penny, baby. Henny Penny's her name. You know, hey, you know why your mom and grandmother never read this to you? Because unlike the Disney Pixar version, all the characters die a gruesome death in this story. <laughs> That's why she didn't read it to you. All right, so what happens? Henny Penny's in the barnyard, and an acorn falls from the tree. And immediately she's like, oh my goodness, the sky is falling. It's all, the world's ending. And so she goes and gets a friend. She's like, the sky's falling, the world's ending, we gotta get the king. He's like, yeah, man, we better go get the king. And they go on, they repeat it over and over again. They get all the people together and then they meet Foxy Loxy. You guys knew that name though, right? Foxy Loxy. And they tell Foxy Loxy and he's like, yeah, the sky's falling. You better, we better go get the king. All along, it's his strategy to distract them and then uh, the story's uh, evolved over like 250 years of existence, but the predominant story is that as they're walking kind of in a staggered line, one by one, Foxy Loxy picks them off from behind and eats them. And here's how the story actually ends, if you have the real book, this picture here. There he is. <laughs> you know, that's actually, that's part of the... That's how he gets you. He's actually cute, right? She pointed it out. It's actually cute. Okay, we joke, and it's a kid's story. I mean, kind of. <laughs> Tell your kids that story. You're going to be paying for the counseling later in life. Guys, we laugh, but the church is living out the narrative of Chicken Little. We look at every little thing that is happening within the church. Here's an example. Just this week... Um, the Barna Group, in cooperation with LifeWay, published a study that they do every couple years. 
and the intent is to kind of get a, a, a temperature reading on theological convictions among Christians in the U.S. And, and this year, what they learned was more Christians, evangelicals in the U.S. than not, do not believe that Jesus is actually God, okay, is one. And the other one was more Christians than not in the U.S., do not believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Okay, so two, so we would look at that and we'd be like, oh my goodness, the sky is falling. Or you listen to a podcaster, preacher, read a book who gets you spun up that somebody is unfaithful and that the sky is falling on the church. And you're like, oh my goodness, the sky is falling. We need to attack this person, this church, this place, right? And we turn on each other and we infight. Or, even worse, we can be convinced by a political season, a president, a, a social movement, whatever it may be, that, oh my goodness, the sky is falling! And we are convinced that rather than living in a safe harbor that is meant for the restoration of people, that the church lives in an armory that is meant to arm people so that we can go to war with each other for purity, or that we can go to war with people in the culture because somehow they are enemy. Oh my goodness! The sky is falling. And the church ceases to be a beautiful place. And it ceases to be a safe harbor because we are at war with each other and at war with the people in the culture all around us. All the while, the apostles said, in every generation of the church, acorns are going to rain down on you from every direction, and it's not the sky. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. They're going to come from within. And look, there are going to be a million acorns that are slung at you from the culture if you're striving to live gladly within the limits God has given you. But it's not the sky. The sky is not falling. When we forget the warnings of the apostles, and we do believe the sky is falling, we run. We run after every acorn slinger out there. Because our mission then becomes, if we can just take them all down, if we can just remove them, it'll be safe. All the while, we've been distracted from who we are as God's family and distracted from God's mission because we have forgotten. The apostles said, I'm sure they would have paraphrased it this way, acorns will always be slung, but the sky won't fall wide. Jesus holds the sky up. Jesus, didn't Jesus promise, it's my church, I'm going to build it, you're not going to build it. What did he say? The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. The sky will not fall on the church. He's going to build it. Uh, the true church will always persevere, and someday he's going to return, and it will be an incredibly beautiful harbor, and so many people will have re be restored. And guess what? The sky will never have fallen on the church. The oak tree itself may be chopped down and fall down on the church, but the sky will never fall. Jesus will never let his church be destroyed. So we face it. We face it. We face, here's our decision. We can complain, and if we choose the pathway of complaining like the sky is falling, we will by default lose our ability to be a contending church where the church, where the gospel is beautiful and the harbor is safe. We can, we can get all spun up with anxiety and become alarmists rather than being gospel activists that work for the good and the flourishing of other people. Notice there's a, a word in here. He says they are divisive people. Um, if we are alarmist Christians, we are divisive. And later he's going to say they're divisive because they don't have the spirit. But those who have the spirit are building people. We build something. Let me just say this. As a church, as a Christian, you can't simultaneously divide and destruct and destroy the acorn slingers and at the same time build something that is beautiful. you got to choose one or the other. We're either going to have a safe harbor or a seriously dangerous armory. You choose. I kind of like the safe harbor myself. And so Jude says, remember, in every generation, the acorns are going to rain down. The sky is not falling. So here's, so the first step in being a church that contends, lives for the good of other people, is to remember the warnings of the apostles. There will always be the acorns. We're not going to be alarmists. We're not going to freak out. We're going to be steady. We're not going to run around like crazy. Rather, the, 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 the next step that he gives us, rather than running around, we remain calm, steady, unmoving. Guys, the, the alternative, look, if you're going to be an alarmist and you're just going to run around, the waters will never be calm. 
They'll be choppy. The harbor will not be safe. There will not be, nobody will be able to sail in here, drop anchor, and be restored and find rest. Growing up, uh, this, I didn't think of this in the first service, but it's kind of, it fits in with Chicken Little, I guess. My grandfather had turkeys and chickens. And uh, this is going to go sideways real quick. I'm sorry, parents, in advance. But once a year, we would harvest the turkeys. And uh, I shouldn't have even introduced this. Sorry. Okay. So we would decapitate the turkeys with an axe, okay? And uh, do you know what happened to a turkey after that's been done? It pops up. And it runs around like crazy. And then it falls down dead. In fact, one time, we ch- <laughs> my brother was inside the fence, and the head got chopped, and we didn't know what happened yet, and it jumped up and started chasing my brother, this headless turkey. <laughs> and my grandfather had electric fences, and first my brother runs into the electric fence, and then the turkey <laughs> runs into the electric It was the best day of my life. It was fantastic. Um, all that to say, guys, when we believe the sky is falling, when we're alarmists and we have been convinced that we need to chase after the acorn slingers, we are the headless turkey running around. And you know what? They will get the biggest crowds. They will sell the most books. They'll get the most podcast uh, listens and the most YouTube. That's what this, not only, it's not only a news cycle thing, guys. There is an entire version of Christianity that exists in our country, in the West, to stir up alarmism. It's evil. It's ungodly, and it's devoid of the Spirit. And we will be the headless turkey that eventually, it looks good, it looks like it's running around full of life. You will run into the electric fence, and you will fall down, and you will die. All right, there's your headless turkey part of the sermon. <laughs> Moving on. Rather, we remain. Here's what, here's, what, here's what you said. All right, so we reject alarmism. We reject the running around. Calm, steady, focused, always going to be the acorns. We can be okay with that. Verse 20, you beloved, building yourselves up, right? Not destroying, building up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. You, here's the big idea, you don't be running around. You together as a family, you stay somewhere as the acorns rain down. You keep yourself in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If we're going to be a church that contends, it's a beautiful place. We reject alarmism. We reject the running around. We're not even going after the acorn slingers, as wrong as they are. That's God's lane. We're hyper-focused. We remember and we remain in God's love. As a family, we go to this place. So let's kind of break it down. We got building yourselves up in your most holy faith, right? So if we're not going to be alarmists running around, the one idea that Jude really wants us to feel is that as a family, we would be committed to remaining where it is. I'll let him go by. Remaining where we feel the Father's love. That means as a family, we do the work of staying where we can see the Father's promises, we can hear our Father's voice, and we can feel the warmth of his embrace. Um, we know the sun is absolutely critical to life, right? Did you know that you were, in the same way that a plant, any living being must have the sun in order to live? With God as your creator, you are created so that you must have the Father's love in order to live. Distance from the Father's love always brings death in our souls. It happened to me in January, February. For those of you Oki veterans, you remember this last winter, right? brutal. One of the worst winters on record, not temperature wise. Although when I moved here, the year I moved here for five minutes in a February, it snowed back in 2016. We had, yes, true story. I see some heads nodding, snow in Okinawa. I pray for it to happen again, but so far no dice. Thank you. Yeah, let's pray together. Okay. Cause winter's coming. We can do this. All right. It was a long winter. January, February, March, like no sunshine here. I forgot if I was living in Tsunabe or Seattle, like Yomitan or Yukon, like Okinawa or Oregon. I don't know, like no sunshine. 
I died inside. I, I need the sun in my life for my mental well-being and my physical well-being. I don't want to run in the morning when it's dark. I don't want to run in the nighttime when it's dark. I want to run at lunchtime when it's hot and I can see the sun and feel the sun. I'm going to counseling. <laughs> but that's our soul. You crave proximity to the Father's love and shadows kill your soul. So Jude says, as a family, we don't run around. We're not alarmists. We work instead to, as a family, remain in the Father's love. But for us, it sounds a little ambiguous, a little subjective. Like we're talking about feelings now, John. How do we do the work of remaining? Well, he breaks it down for us, right? We build each other up in the most holy faith. We pray in the spirit and we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ because there is eternal life. So let's break those down briefly. I really like this first command. Like this is how, as a family, we contend. This is how we remain. This is how we make sure that every, we look at our family and we make this commitment to each other. Nobody in the shadows. That's our commitment. That's what we mean when we join a church family. I am committed to living in the sunlight with you. And if I see that you have been overtaken by shadows, I'm coming for you. And I will sit in the shadows with you and remind you that behind your dark clouds, the sun still shines. And I'm going to take you by your hand after we've mourned and after we've lamented. That's fine. And then we're going to walk hand in hand back into the sunlight together. That's the commitment a family makes. No one alone in the shadows. If you're going to be in the shadows, I'm going there with you. And then together we'll back, walk back into the sunlight. And I love this first command because um, it, it kind of imagines three things, this work of building. It imagines a foundation, it imagines a family, and it imagines a fight, like really hard work, a straight up fight. Let's start with the foundation. He says, build yourselves up or build one another up in your most holy faith. In other words, I'm not the foundation, the pastor's not the foundation, the church family's not the foundation. Our doctrinal position is not the foundation. All these other things are not foundations. The gospel alone is the foundation. Who God, who our God is, who we are as his sons and daughters, we are fully forgiven, perfectly loved, and forever kept. Boom. There is our foundation. Jude says, while everybody else is being an alarmist and screaming out that the sky is falling and overreacting, we gather up our family we acknowledge the acorns. We say, it's not the sky. We're okay. 2,000 years ago, the apostles said it would be this way. We gather each other up and we move towards the safety of our Father's love for us by building each other up. Okay? It assumes the foundation of the gospel. That's why it's so important to Jude, so important to us. It assumes family. Guys, all of the language in here is plural collective community language. You don't build yourself up. You cannot build yourself up. God may build you up, but he chooses to build you up in a community, in a family. Um, too often we think about Christian spirituality like we're all a bunch of independent contractors. When I got out of the Marine Corps and moved back to where my family was at in upstate New York, Syracuse, they won, by the way, 4-0 yesterday, 4-0. Um, beat Virginia, booyah. Um, sorry, I was really excited they're 4-0. Everybody's an independent contractor where my dad was pastoring. Like everybody had a pickup truck and overalls and calloused hands and everybody was an independent contractor. Super cool place to live. The New Testament doesn't know anything about independent contractors though when we're talking about God's family and the expression of your faith. Less independent autonomous contractor, more Amish barn raising. Like that's what the New Testament thinks about when it thinks about building up. Anybody ever seen an Amish barn raising? Got a few. Anybody participate in an Amish barn raising? Anybody see the viral video a couple years ago of like 300 Amish people picking up a barn and moving it into a field? Crazy. That's super cool. Guys, this command assumes family. Like that's why we care so much about like what we call church membership. It's an acknowledgement that there are lots of spiritual barns, if you will, being built on this island. And that's fantastic. But if you're going to build well, and if you're going to be built up well, you got to choose one of them. You got to get your tool belt. You got to join, join the family and be all in on building. And you got to be present. You got to be known and you got to know people so you can build and be built on, that you're on the foundation together. We build together for each other's good. Nobody builds alone. So we have our foundation. We have our family. And I love the metaphor of building because it's Jude's way of saying this is straight up work. This is work. I ran into one of you earlier this week. 
and you were talking about your missional community and the Bible study you're doing, how it talks about the Holy Spirit. You're learning how to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, he was here in the first service. And he said to me, he's like, man, John, what I am learning is none of this comes naturally to me. It's all hard fought. It's all work. I feel like there's something wrong with me. And I'm like, dude, there's nothing wrong with you. You are a normal, we got to be careful with the word normal, but you're a normal kid in God's family. Like, welcome to the status quo. This doesn't come naturally to any of us. But in your thoughts, you will be convinced through your own self-condemnation or through Satan's condemnation, you are a terrible Christian because it's so much work to read the Bible and you don't want to. It's so much work to pray and you don't pray well. It's so much work. If I were really a Christian, it would come normally and naturally. No. Actually, the presence of the fight is one of the primary evidences that you are a follower of Jesus because there are new desires in your heart that exist in competition, if you will, with the rebel tendencies that are there. It's evidence that Jesus has given you life and is changing your heart. The fight is proof of life, but it's a fight. You're going to get calluses on your hand, and it's the commitment we make together as a family, okay? We have our foundation. It's the gospel. We have a family. No one builds alone or for themselves. We build together for each other's good and for Jesus' fame. And there's no assumption that for anyone in this room it's going to be easy, and there's nothing wrong with you if it's hard. It is a fight. Now, let me just say one more thing. Some of you are too tired to build, and so you think, well, I'm probably, I probably shouldn't go to church because if I can't prove I belong there, I should probably just stay away until I feel strong again. Like, I don't want to just be a leech. I don't want to just show up and receive. Like, I need to prove. I need to give. I need to swing my hammer. I need to build. That's not a beautiful harbor or a safe place. That's not the gospel. You know what Jesus desires for his family? That for those of you who are weary and heavy laden, that you would come to him and swing your hammer harder so you can prove you belong. No, he said, if you're weary and you're heavy laden, come to me and what? I'm gonna give you rest. So can I just say a word to those of you who are beat down? Your arms are too tired to even pick that hammer up. You feel self-conscious about that. You can't even sing the songs on Sunday morning. We want you here. We want you here. You know where we want you? We want you right in the center of the foundation, surrounded by the walls, surrounded by your family who's doing the building. And it's okay. Don't bring your tools. Don't open your mouth. Sit in silence. We want you here. You can't say the words. You can't sing the words. We'll say them for you. The clouds are too dark. You can't believe that God is good. We will believe for you. You can't remind yourself that's okay. Not with guilt and shame, but with kindness and gentleness. We'll remind you that behind the clouds, there is a gentle, loving Father. Guys, if you're in a dark place and you disbelieve that God is good or kind or loving, can I just urge you, trust the family more than you trust your own feelings. You're tempted to let your feelings lead your feet to walk away. Disbelieve that and walk yourself into the center of the family and just sit down. Trust the foundation that the family sits on, the gospel, more than you trust your feelings. We're all gonna go through those seasons. Spend those seasons in the middle of the family where maybe the ringing of the hammers in all the other building that's happening will reverberate through your ears as you sit silently in the same way that you can't hear the Father's voice anymore for yourself. Let the hammers and let the voices of the other members of the family be the Father's voice reverberating through your ears for you. Stay close to the family. We, we want you here when you're in those seasons. So we build up. That's all I wanted to say about build up. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Amish. Like, I really did. When I grew up, people asked me what I do. I'm like, I'm going to be Amish. Um, and then I was like, then when I, then when I learned that while there's a lot of admirable, you know, regards about Amish culture at, um, in terms of faith expression, it's really gospel deficient culture. Like, it's really works oriented and all that. So I'm like, well, I'll just be a missionary to the Amish. Sweet. I can, uh, but I'm 42. I am considering some life changes. So that is, that's still possibly growing the beard, wearing the flannel. So I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> Maybe go that way. The hat. I need the hat. Yeah. 
Uh, let's talk about praying in, right? Praying in. This might be the most beautiful line in all of Jude's letter. You know why? Because this is Jude's kind way of giving you a hug and saying, look, son, you're really bad at praying. Like, girl, look, just, like, just close your mouth. Like, just, you're really bad at praying. He didn't, look, he could have written pray, just pray. Like, he could have just commanded pray. But he said pray in, in is a word of dependence. Like, just, just give up. Like, stop. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Paul writes about it this way. In fact, he says pray at all times, in all places, in the Holy Spirit. So this isn't like a weird way of praying. This is actually the normative way that we're supposed to pray. Like an acknowledgement that all of Jesus' kids are ADHD. Like we all have an attention deficit that when we start praying, it immediately kicks in. And in 10 seconds, we're gone. Like, that's me. Is it you? Hey, welcome to the... Look, there are not Christians who are better than you. There may be some Christians who have worked harder than you for a lifetime and have cultivated some disciplines, but there are no Christians that are better or stronger than you, apart from a gifting from Jesus. So praying in the Holy Spirit. Check out how Paul writes about it in Romans 8. I want you to see this. He says... You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. It's through the spirit that we're able to say, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Remember what he said in his letter? There are some who are devoid of the spirit and some who have the spirit, evidence of sonship. Now check this out. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Next verse, pop to Romans 8, 26. For we, look at this, this is so liberating for you. It should be, we don't know how to pray. Paul will say it for you. We don't know how to pray as we ought to. But check this out. The Spirit himself intercedes with us, uh, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. That's us, not perfect people, but sons and daughters, according to the will of God. Whoa. You know what we need to try this week? When you try to pray, like, Dad, here I am again. Um, I just discovered what you said about me in Romans 8. Hurts a little bit, but I'm willing to receive it. Um, so I'm just going to acknowledge that I don't pray well, and I'm just going to sit here in silence. And God, Holy Spirit, would you please pray on my behalf? Because I don't even really know what to say. Family, I think the introduction of silence into our attempts to pray would be the most powerful thing you can do rather than trying to introduce more words. You guilt yourself because you don't pray enough words. How about praying fewer? How about just the acknowledgement that I need the Holy Spirit for this? That's what Jude means. So if we're going to be a family that contends, we remember acorns, right? Not overreacting, steady, calm. We don't run after the acorn throwers. We gather in the love of God together as a family. We have a foundation. We're working to build each other up on it. And the way maybe the nails that bring all the timbers together are the prayers that we pray in the Holy Spirit. And finally, waiting for the mercy of Jesus. Um, I'm really bad at praying. I'm even worse at this, if it makes you feel like it. Just uh, this is where we're at. Waiting for the mercy of Jesus, that's where life comes from, Jude says. It's what Jude is explaining is a reorientation of our hope, right? So we hope on people to change. We hope on circumstances to change. We hope on duty assignments and orders and houses and babies and finances and uh, sports records. I mean, all the things we hope, we hope, we hope on uncertainty. And Jude says, for a family that's committed to contending and to being a place that is safe, we do the hard work of learning together that um, as followers of Jesus, we need to reorient our hope, all the full weight of our hope off of these daily uncertain things and orient them over on Jesus. Because when our hope is on Jesus, what does he say comes from that? Life. So how could we say that oppositely or negatively? If we are hoping in people, places, or things, other than Jesus, or as Jesus substitutes, rather than life, what will our souls find? Death, right? So a family that is committed to contending for each other's good will learn together what it looks like. Sure, we still have hopes. We have hopes, but ultimately our hope is in Jesus, 
and his return in which he will right all wrongs and heal all wounds and restore all brokenness give peace where there is no peace he is my ultimate hope and when we collectively as a family can remember and resist the running we stay close to the father's love we pray in the spirit and we work collectively to reorient our hope so that we are not destroyed under the weight of disappointed hopes in this world the culture of our family will be a beautiful safe harbor that is the work of contending for the gospel oops sorry i think i need to be done um i am forgetting something let me just finish with this question though we already kind of acknowledged that we're forgetful, wandering kids. So let's ask this question as we finish. What is God's posture? What, is, what does the Father do with his forgetful, wandering kids? Is he going to give up on you because you forget too often? Is he going to, the next time you wander, is he just going to, like, here he goes again. I brought him back last time, showed him all the love, all the kindness, all the mercy. He's going again. Good riddance. Deuces. Probably not throwing deuces. Is he just going to let you go? Guys, we need to sit with this because that's what our hearts tell us. Our hearts condemn us. I'm a forgetful, wandering kid. I have not been a good son. I have not been a good daughter. Here I go again. But what does Jude remind us about our father? Jude 1 and, and the way he wraps it up. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Go ahead and throw this up. To those who are... This is us. Okay, who are we? We are called... By the Father, we are deeply loved sons and daughters. And what? What? Wait, I, you're what? Wait, who's kept? Are you kept? Why? Because of you? No, for Jesus. The Father will never, ever, ever, ever let his wandering kids go. He will n the Father never forgets his forgetful kids. He'll always keep you. That's how Jude finishes too. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and he's going to present you blameless. Fam, in all your forgetting, in all your wandering, the father looks at you and sees a blameless son or daughter because of the kindness of Jesus. Grant's going to come now and lead us in response and singing, um, and also in a prayer. This morning we want to pray specifically for those of you in the room who feel far from the love of God. Is that George? Is George praying for us? One of these two guys is going to pray. But guys, can we just acknowledge this? We talk about God's love. We talk about being a contending church, beautiful harbor, safe place. All the while, there are people in this room who are breaking and broken inside. And they feel, you feel unlovable. You feel you have wandered off and you feel that God has forgotten you. And the clouds in your life are so thick that you cannot see or feel or hear the presence of a loving God. And we just want you to know this morning that we love you we are glad you are here, and we want to pray specifically for you right now.